Happy Easter, Winston-Salem. Happy Easter, Two Cities Church. What an incredible day. We get to celebrate the greatest event in human history and the greatest person in human history, Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And here's what the resurrection tells us. It tells us that death has been defeated and that sins have been forgiven. And, And here's the truth. This is a unique Easter. It's a unique Easter because it's the first Easter in the history of America where we're unable as a church on Easter Sunday, and really for us it's our Super Bowl, on on Easter Sunday we're unable to gather together in each other's presence physically. And, And this room is empty, and so many rooms around our nation and really around our world are empty, right? The empty room has in many ways defined the last few weeks of my life and the last few weeks of your life. Right? For for students and for families, it's the empty classroom. For businessmen and women, it's the empty boardroom. For college students, it's the empty dorm room. And when we think about all of the empty rooms, and we're reminded when we drive by restaurants or all of the things that we are unable to do in this season, when we think about the empty room, it can lead us to not having hope. But our, our focus today cannot be the empty room. What we came to celebrate, what we come to celebrate on Easter is the empty tomb. And when we look to the empty room, we can get depressed. But when we look to the empty tomb, there is joy, there is hope. And I want you to understand, I want you to know this, because I know on, on Easter we've got lots of different types of people watching, and we're so glad that, that you've tuned in, and we're gonna, we hope you'd stay with us. But I just want you to know, if you've got to leave early, or maybe even if you're a note taker, I want you to know that the main message, the main message of Christianity is the main message of Easter, and it's simply this, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, We are witnesses, and this changes everything. It's incredible that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changes destinies, it changes legacies, it changes eternities. And I'm very excited to talk to you about this today because I want you to know this. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a seeker, skeptic, whether you're trying to figure out faith, our desire is for you to really understand what Christianity is about so that if you reject Christianity, we hope you don't, but if you reject Christianity, you reject it for the right reasons And you understand what you are rejecting because at the center of Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ, right? There's four world religions that have a person at the center. Uh, Judaism historically has had Moses at the center because he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Um, Islam has had Muhammad at the center. Buddhism has had Buddha at the center. And Christianity has Jesus Christ at the very center. And let me just tell you, there is no one in human history who has had the influence or the impact of Jesus Christ. I want to read you a quote from a historian. This is a historian who admits that he is not a Christian, but here's what he says. This is H.G. Wells. A non-Christian historian says this, I am a historian and I am not a believer. But I must confess to you as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And this is an amazing thought because think with me for a moment about Jesus Christ. Right? He, he, no one has had more songs sung about them. No one has had more books written about them or paintings uh, painted of them than Jesus Christ. Think with me for a second. Um, he did not come from a wealthy or influential family. He grew up in a poor family. He did not come from a great city. He came from a small town. He never ran for political office. He never fought in a war. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles. He lived a very short life. His life was ended when he was only 33 years old. Yet, No one has had the impact or influence on human history that he has. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to go back 
And this is what we do every Easter. This is what the church has done for 2,000 years. I want us to go back to that first Sunday, to that first Easter Sunday. And if you'll turn with me, or it'll be on the screen, but if, if, you, if you've got a Bible, you can grab it. We're going to be in Matthew. And Matthew, by the way, is one of the four Gospels. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them deal with Jesus Christ, his life, his death. But, but guess what? About, I believe it's over a third of every Gospel deals just with the last week of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So let, let's pick up on the first Easter 2,000 years ago in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, after the Sabbath, and for them, the Sabbath was Saturday, it says this, toward the dawn, and, and, other, and another gospel says the fourth watch, which means somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and I know some of you go, there's a time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m.? <laughs> yes, it does exist, okay? They were up early, they were, they were seeking the Lord. It says this, toward the dawn of the first day, now back then they didn't have names for days of the week, they had numbers for days of the week, so this would be our Sunday, it's the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene. And the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, I've, I've got to tell you this. You've got to understand what happened the week before. Uh, because to understand the significance of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to understand that the week before was the worst week in Jesus' life and the worst week in his disciples' life. Um, he, he ended up being betrayed by a close friend. He ended up being deserted by all of his other friends. He ended up facing an unjust trial he ended up dying innocently, violently, tragically, as a young man through the worst means of torture imaginable through the cross. So the cross, we, we get the word excruciating, that word literally means from the cross. And see, Jesus Christ died publicly and was humiliated publicly in a Roman execution on the cross. And here's what Christians have always believed, that Jesus Christ did not die on that cross simply as an example. That Jesus Christ died on that cross as a substitute for you and for me. That the cross was not only public, but it was Jesus Christ paying. This is what he said he was going to do. That he was going to die for the sins of the world. That he was going to pay for the penalty and the punishment that sin deserves. So, so these two women and the rest of the disciples, they lose their best friend. In, in verse 1 of chapter 28, it says they go to the tomb. Now, why do you go to a tomb? Well, the reason that you go to a tomb, it's the same reason that if you've ever had someone close to you die, the reason that you go to these grave sites and gravesides and you, you return to them is because it's the last point of contact where you saw that person's body. And so you have kind of a memory of them at that place, and so often you would return there. So here's what you need to know. These women returned with no thought, with no hope, with no expectation of a resurrection. But I want you to see what begins to happen. So they go there, and I want to read this verse one more time because it's very interesting. It says this, um, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now here's what's interesting and why I want to read it again. The first people at the tomb are women. Now this is interesting because they're actually, women are, uh, they're awesome. They're, they're the last people at the cross, they are the first people at the tomb, and we'll see a little bit later, they are the first evangelists in the early church. And so what we end up seeing is these women come to the tomb, and they're going to meet the risen Christ. And here's why this is such an interesting thing. If you were making up a story, and you were trying to make up some fable or fairy tale, which by the way this isn't, you're going to notice you've got names, you've got places, it's because, because what we believe is not hocus pocus, it's not fable or fairy tale, it's not myth or legend, it's based on historical facts. So you have these two women show up. Now back then, 
Uh, women were not allowed to vote. They weren't allowed, allowed to own property. They were not allowed to testify in court. So if you were going to make up a story, why would you have two women show up who would not be able to testify in court as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ? Well, the only reason you would do that is because it's true. That you have these women, they show up, and they are the first to see Christ. But before they see Christ, they see an angel. I want you to look at verse 2. It says this, And behold, there was a great earthquake. What you're going to notice is everything is shaking. Everything around them is shaking, except for their faith in Christ. Here's what it says. And behold, there was a great earthquake, so the land is shaking. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back that stone. Now that stone, they estimate, weighed about two tons. Uh, and in other accounts, the women say, how are we going to remove the stone? Well, the angel comes and removes the stone. And he sat on it. And his appearance, verse 3, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled. So the earth shakes and the guards tremble. And they became like dead men. Now this is interesting. The angels show up, and this is good to know, angels are ministers and messengers from God. I heard it said this way, a good summary of how angels work is that God has an earthly family, humans, and God has a heavenly family, angels. And often what God will do in critical, crucial, and key events in the life of Jesus, he sends an angel. So there are angels at Jesus' birth. There are angels right after Jesus' temptation. There are angels right in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying. There are angels at his resurrection. There are angels immediately as he ascends into heaven. At key, at critical, at crucial times, angels show up. Now here's what they do, and this is, this is really what the heart of Easter is about. The angel rolls back the stone. Now why? He doesn't roll back the stone and then, you know, Jesus walks out. Jesus had already risen from the dead. Jesus had already left Jesus was already somewhere else. Jesus was already physically gone. There was nothing to see in the tomb. Why would he uh, roll back and invite them in? It's because he wants us. He's in, it's an invitation to examine the evidence. Isn't that incredible? That, that, and I want you to know this. No matter where you are, seeker, skeptic, trying to figure out faith, you're, you're questioning. Uh, here's what I want you to understand. That, that the angel and God himself, he invites you to examine the evidence. And there's a lot of evidence to examine. There's the changed life of the disciples. There's the eyewitness accounts. There's the empty tomb itself, and we're going to look at all these things. But it, that it's, you know, we are called in the Bible to love God with our mind, with our heart, with our soul, and with our strength. And so the Bible is not against us. It, there's a reasonableness to bringing our mind and our thoughts to this and asking some difficult questions, and the angel in Jesus Christ himself invites us to do so. So here's what the angel says next, verse 5. But the angel said to the women... And we're going to return to this, but do not be afraid. Isn't that amazing? We live in a time of fear. And the first words of the angel to the women because of the resurrection and the hope that we have in Christ is do not be afraid. And then he says this, for I know that you seek Jesus. If you're seeking Christ, you don't have to be afraid. If you're going after Christ, you do not have to be afraid. Here's what he says. Who was crucified? <clears throat> he is not here for he has risen as he had said, come and see the place where he lay. The Bible talks about a bodily resurrection. He has risen, uh, speaks to a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It doesn't mean he, he is spiritually raised in our hearts. It doesn't mean, as some will say, oh yeah, yeah, he's been resurrected in his teaching and in the lives of his disciples. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking, that's why it actually says, he told you this would happen. You saw that in verse 5 and 6. And actually, he wants you to go and he wants you to see him. 
Which leads to the next thing that, that the angel says. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen, second time that we're told this, from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, physically, bodily raised from the dead. See, I have told you. So, and this, I love the honesty of the Bible about the mixture of emotion that we have. Look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. That's a mingling of mi- and a mixture of emotions. And they ran to tell his disciples. And there's three things I want us to see from God's word today on this Easter. Here's what it is. Every person needs to deal with the empty tomb. Every person Every person in every place needs to deal with this. And what a better time than maybe when you're staying at home or you're sheltered in place or you're in quarantine and you've got a lot of extra time and a lot of different things to think about. What an incredible time to consider the empty tomb. So we all have to deal with it because here's a couple facts. These are just facts and facts are our friends. Um, the, The tomb was never enshrined. So like we know where Muhammad is buried and we know where Buddha is buried and we know where Elvis is buried, okay? We know where, where famous people, when they die, what happens is if there is a body, that place becomes enshrined. This is why when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, they dropped his body in the ocean. Why? Because they didn't want anyone to enshrine a place and come and make pilgrimages and make visits. So we all have to deal with this reality of the empty tomb. Now let me tell you the four ways people try to deal with it. And I just want to be completely honest, these are the only four ways, or I will say this, they are certainly the the four most popular mainstream ways people try to explain away the resurrection and the empty tomb. The first is they say, oh, those hopeless disciples. You know, they went to the wrong tomb, Um, you know, they they, they got lost. It's like, if that happened, first of all, you know, and and I'm somebody who's directionally challenged, okay, and I'm someone who's very dependent on my GPS, and I'm someone who could easily get lost. But this was a walking culture in which they weren't driving far distances, they were walking short distances. And this is, they, three days earlier, they had buried him and placed him and put him in the tomb. And it was, we're told in all four gospel accounts, it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which is a very wealthy, very famous, very prominent, very well-known man, and everybody would have known where this tomb is. And, and you know, that means that if they went to the wrong tomb, that means that the women went to the wrong tomb, that means Peter went to the wrong tomb, that means John later goes to the wrong tomb, that means the guards were at the wrong tomb, and believe it or not, it means the angel went to the wrong tomb, okay? Uh, and obviously, we know that's not true, and, and, and here's how we know that, because if they had gone to the wrong tomb, then what would have happened is the, the authorities of that day would have just taken them to the right tomb, they would have shown the body, and they would have said, that's the end of that. So we, we know that's not a good excuse, the hopeless disciples. Here's, here's a second one, um, hallucinations. And, this, and some of you who are uh, you know, from the 60s and 70s, you may be more familiar with hallucinations, okay? But, but now, do hallucinations happen? Because here's what they said. They said, well, here's what happened. The disciples weren't sleeping. They were stressed. They were depressed. They lost someone close to him. And he didn't rise from the dead. They just thought he did. Um, they just imagined that he did. And well, th- now does that happen? D- does occasionally, do people hallucinate after someone they love dies if they're stressed and depressed and not sleeping? Well, yes, that does happen. But does that happen over the course of 40 days? Both, too, because it says Christ uh, presented himself alive to individuals, repeatedly, to small groups of people, and at one point even to a group of 500 people. Now, what happens when you have 500 people seeing something? Well, there's no such thing in recorded human history of um, of a group hallucination. If a group of people see something, we don't call that a hallucination, we call that an event. And so that, that doesn't work. By, by the way, the quote-unquote hallucinations stop after 40 days. And so both of those fall short. Here's the third thing, the swoon theory. The swoon theory basically says, hey, listen, 
Even though the Romans killed people for a living, they didn't kill Jesus. The cross didn't work for Jesus. He was just, uh, he was completely unconscious, and the dampness and the wetness and the coolness of the tomb woke him up. And then afterwards, even though he was severely beaten, he presented himself alive to others, and they believed it really was a resuscitation. They thought it was a resurrection. Now, now, first of all, you know, if somebody had been severely, um, you know, beaten and then flogged and then crucified, there's no way that person would be able to present themselves alive as a living Lord who'd been resurrected from the dead. I mean, some of you, you wake up and you have a sleeping injury, okay? <laughs> you went to bed, you woke up and your, your arm hurts or your neck hurts, right? Could you imagine being crucified and then pre- presenting yourself as the risen Lord of the universe? Now, I love what one scholar says about this. And again, this guy is not a Christian, and I'm quoting mostly non-Christians here. But this, um, this scholar who ten- is an atheist, here's what he says about the swoon theory. His name is David Frederick Strauss. He says this, it is impossible that a being who had, stolen half, who had been stolen half dead out of the tomb who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life. And so that leads to the fourth thing. So some people go, well, they were hopeless. Others say hallucination. Others say swoon theory. And then others say it was a hoax. And, and what, by that, what they mean is the disciples came in, and uh, it was all part of their plan. And they somehow were able to sneak past these trained Roman guards who would have been the Navy SEALs of that day. And they were able to move the stone without anyone noticing. And they were able to take the body and they were able to hide it somewhere else. The only problem with that is, one, getting past the guards. Um, the, the second problem with that is all of these men died graphic and gruesome deaths. There was not any kind of financial or physical or temporal benefit for them to say that Jesus Christ, Christ risen, rose from the dead. Not, not only were they often tortured terribly, but often their families along with them. Now, I know that people die for lies, but very often, or very, or very infrequently, would somebody be willing to die for something that they said they saw, that they experienced, and that they heard? Which leads to the second thing that you have to deal with, and we talk about this every Easter because it's so important. You have to deal with what, what theologians and commentators and experts and historians call historical uh, circumstantial evidence. So let me just give you those three quickly. The historical evidence around the, the resurrection of Christ is, number one, the train, change and transformed lives of these disciples. They went from fearful uh, to fearless. They went from hiding and hoarding to being willing to help other people. Um, They went from people who were ashamed of Christ to boldly preaching and teaching about Christ. And you got to go, what what, what changed these simple men, these simple men, many of them, simple fishermen? We believe it was the experience with a resurrected Christ. The second thing is that Jesus' own family worshipped him. Now, moms, I mean, what would you have to do to worship your son? (laughs) What would he have to do, right? Some of you go, I've never thought my son was a sinless son of God. I I have thought Satan a couple times, okay? (laughs) Um, You know, it's like, what what would a mom have to do? What would have to happen in a child's life or in a mother's life for that mother to worship her son? Or or how many of you, I mean, James ends up worshiping Jesus as his older brother and ends up dying and being murdered for his faith in Christ, which happened to be his older brother. I mean, how many of you are willing to worship your older brother? You're like, no, he gave me wedgies and swirlies. I'm not doing it, you know? And here we have, we have Jesus Christ worshiped by his own family. And then here's the third thing, which is really amazing if you know religious people, is that Jewish people, religious people, way more religious than anyone you've ever known, was, were willing to change the day of worship after 2,000 years from Saturday to Sunday. 
which would be like us being willing to change the day of worship from Sunday to Monday, because for them, Sunday, guess what it was? It was their Monday. It was their work day. So they had to get up very early and go to worship before they worked all day. So it was incredibly inconvenient. Why would you do something like that? Because Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week, and you want to celebrate that day, and everything changes because of what, of Christ, what Christ has done. Which leads to the second big idea coming out of this text, which is this. The empty tomb speaks to our fears. The empty tomb speaks to our fears. I want you to look with me again at verse 5. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. That's the first time we're going to be told that. Look at this. He is not here, for he has risen. As he has said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Then look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them. So here's these women, they're, they're, they left the tomb, they left where the angel was. It says, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus, and this is amazing, I want you to see when something's repeated, it's very important. And the same thing the angel told them a few minutes ago, now Jesus is going to repeat and say to them again. I want you to see this. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So two different times Jesus tells us not to be afraid. Why is that? Well, because, you know, when we trust in Christ, we're no longer afraid, and we're, when we're looking at Christ, and we realize the resurrection, we realize the empty tomb, we realize, you know, our eternity's secure, we're not afraid, but then we check the news. You know, we're afraid again. <laughs> or we, we check our bank account, we're afraid again. Or we look at our retirement, we're afraid again. Or, or we wonder what our new normal will be like after all this, and we get afraid again. And I just think this is such a timely word on Easter for us to hear again as a church and as a nation and as a city do, from the words of Christ, do not be afraid. Now let me say a couple things here. First, Jesus does not say do not be afraid to non-Christians. He does not look to the guards when they're, when they're shocked, when the angel comes, they tremble, they're like dead men, they are so afraid. He doesn't say do not be afraid. Because if your trust is not in Christ, if your hope is not in Christ, then you have a lot to fear. And I'm not trying to be a doomsday person. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm just speaking honestly. The Bible says that if, if you are not a Christian, this is the closest to heaven that you ever get. And if you are a Christian, this is the closest to hell that you ever get. And what Jesus does is he comes and he says, he, when he says do not be afraid, here's what he's saying. It's like, it's like we're in a boat and uh, you imagine being, being on a boat, a, a well-known maybe cruise ship, and, and it's hitting some really, really rough waters and you're really, really scared. But then the captain gets on and says, do not be afraid. And a lot of times, that'll put everybody else at ease because he'll say, do not be afraid because often he'll say something like this. Here's what's happening. <laughs> I've been through this before. I know how to handle it. What, what Jesus is speaking, he's saying, do not be afraid. I'm going to walk with you through all of this. I've been through it and I'm going to walk with you through it. Now, this word has never been more important probably in our nation than it has in, than today in the last few weeks because more than ever, people are afraid. I went to my favorite store, which I talk about all the time, Costco. And I went to Costco, whatever it was, two weeks ago, and I, it, it felt to me like an, a, a completely different store. And every person, and I didn't really interact with anybody because everybody was social distancing, and I understand that, but there, there was a spirit of fear that I felt as soon as I pulled up into that parking lot. And I think what's happened in America is we've realized two things, and this is so important, we've realized two things that have always been true, but we feel them more because of this pandemic. The, the first is that we're not in control. 
You know, we're, we're not in control. When, when, by the way, when we get to over the other end of this, whenever it ends and whatever the new normal looks like, guess what? We're still ultimately not going to be in control. Even though we, we'd love to be and we want to be, we're not, we're not going to ultimately be in control. The second thing, and I think this is even a bigger deal that people are dealing with, is they're dealing with their own mortality. And people are reading the statistics, well, this is how old I am, and am I immunocompromised, and what would, I, what would happen, and what city am I in, and, you know, and, and do, will I need a ventilator, and will, will I live if I get this, and will my kids live, and will my grandparents live, and there, there's all of this realization that we're going to die. You know, I had one Christian doctor, godly man I was talking to, this was several years ago actually, and I was talking, he does surgeries for a living, and, and he said something, that just from a, really, from a Christian perspective, he says, you know, people think that doctors save lives. He says, every once in a while I'll do a surgery and someone will say to me, you know, thanks for doing that. It saved my life and gave me, you know, 20 more years. And he says, what I realized, he said, I don't mean to be negative. I don't mean to be doomsday. I don't mean to be, you know, too sober-minded uh, about all this. He said, but, but what I tell people is really what I'm ultimately doing is I'm, I'm not saving your life. I'm delaying your death. And that's kind of a sobering thought to have, but basically that's what happens. It's like, you know, we get through this and, and, and you know, the coronavirus doesn't touch your life like you thought it would or whatever. It's like, are you still going to die? Yes. Are you still not in control ultimately? Yes. And this is why in times of suffering, in times of disease, in times of sickness, in times of distress, the doctrine of heaven, the teaching of heaven, and the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ become even more important in people's lives. Because let's just think about heaven. Let me just encourage you with this. Those of us who are trusting in Christ and headed to heaven, guess what? That flight is not getting canceled, okay? (laughs) There is no coronavirus in heaven, God is not practicing social distancing or spiritual distancing in this season. The economy in heaven is doing so well, the streets are paved in gold. And so our hope needs to ultimately be, and it's so hard for us, even the Christians here in America, because our hope is so much being revealed, right, in the here and now and what we have. Our hope needs to be in the future. Because here's the truth. Um, You will fear. This is an important principle. Whether you're a Christian or not, you need to know this. You will fear whatever you put your faith in. If your faith is in the stock market, you're going to be like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it's going to go I'm, uh, down. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my money. If, if your faith is in your retirement account, I'm afraid. If your faith is in your health or your faith is in a, an ultimate vaccine, or you, you're, you're going to be afraid. But if your faith is ultimately in Christ, then you will fear him for the right reasons. You're going to have a fear and a respect and an admiration of him as Lord and Savior. And he promises, do not be afraid. I will walk with you through this. Because let me just tell you, the effects of fear on you are often worse than the thing you're afraid of. (laughs) Oftentimes, right, the thing we're afraid of doesn't end up happening. But the fear in our life, it steals from us, right? It steals your energy. It steals your sleep. You're overeating. You're not eating enough. You're having panic attacks. You're struggling with anxiety. And what the resurrection, this is why, maybe in ways it's never been for you before, but this is why Easter, and this is why the empty tomb, and this is why the resurrection of Christ is incredibly practical incredibly important, incredibly applicable to where you are. And so what I, want us, what I want us to do with the time left is I want us to admit this. And this is the final, final idea for this thing, for, the, for, for this text today. The empty tomb requires a response. The empty tomb requires a response. I want you to look on, at verses 16 and 17 because what ends up happening, he says, do not fear. The, the women go... And then every, all the disciples gather together at the end of the chapter in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. And I just want to tell you, I love, and you'll see it right here, I love the honesty of the Bible. We said earlier how honest the Bible is to say women were the first at the tomb. 
even though they weren't able to serve as witnesses. That's what happened. So it's written down. That's the historical account. That's what we're saying. But I love the honesty of verse 16. Look what it says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So remember, he said, go there and you'll see me. And when they saw him with their physical eyes, we see him today by the eyes of faith. We see him today through the scriptures. But they saw him physically. It says this, they saw him, they worshiped. And then look at the honesty. This is the honesty of these three verses. But some doubted. I want to encourage you, because this has been a realization in my life in the last few years as I've been studying more of the resurrection and, and the first response to it by the disciples, that the first people who doubted the resurrection and had questions about it were Jesus' disciples himself. Isn't that incredible? The first skeptics, the, pers- the first people who, they're looking at Jesus risen from the dead, and they go, I don't know. You know? Maybe it's a twin. Uh, maybe I'm seeing things. Maybe I'm hallucinating. They had their own questions. Let me just encourage you with this. If you have doubts, you might make a great disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are skeptical, if you have questions, you might make an incredible disciple of Jesus Christ. But let me also challenge you, if I can, for a moment while we're just here talking. Have you ever doubted your doubts? Have you ever said, well, you know what? (laughs) Have you ever looked for reasons to believe? Right? Because doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's often a component of faith. It's, it's, it's I'm struggling, but I'm looking at the evidence, and I want to believe, and that's why we talked about, well, deal with the circumstantial evidence, deal with the empty tomb, deal with the changed lives. Look at, look at the other options and say, what do you think? Did Jesus Christ really raise from the dead? Because here's the truth. If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And there is so much hope for you, and I don't know where each of you are. In this unique season in our city, in our church, in our nation, I don't know how the shelter in place or the stay at home or the quarantine, I don't know how it's affecting your industry. I don't know how it's affecting your family. I don't know how it's affecting your business. I don't know how it's affecting your sleep and your health. But, but I want to give you a chance, and I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you this. How have you responded to Jesus Christ? How have you responded to the empty tomb? Today can be your day because everybody needs to respond to the empty tomb. Everybody needs to say, do I believe in this or do I not? And here's what I'm asking. Have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ personally? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I went to church for years and didn't give my life to Christ. I'm not asking, are you convinced? I'm asking, are you converted? I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer? I'm not asking, did you walk an aisle? I'm not even asking, did you get baptized? I'm not even asking, did you feel bad one night at camp? I'm asking, have you given Jesus Christ your sin and yourself? Because here's the message of Easter. It's so encouraging that Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people better. But he came to make spiritually dead people spiritually alive. He did not come to make bad people better. This isn't rehabilitation. It's something different. It's called resurrection. It's a completely new way of living. What would it look like on the other side of this quarantine? For you to be a completely new person from the inside out. Listen to me. I want you to hear me very clearly because this is the opposite of religion. I want you to understand the gospel. Good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Now, Now, how do you become a Christian? You become a Christian the same way every disciple had to become a Christian. They had to repent and they had to believe. What does repent mean? It means I change my mind. 
That's what it means. It's a, it, here's the normal way we'd say it today, paradigm shift. To repent means I, I, I now think differently about Jesus Christ. I now think differently about God. I now think differently about sin. I now think differently about myself. That's what it means to repent. I think differently, I feel differently, therefore I live differently. And believe, here's what it means. It means that you look to the cross and you look to the resurrection of Christ and you say, that counted for me. I don't understand everything about it. Look, I don't understand everything about it. But you look to the cross of Christ and you go, somehow what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago, it mattered for me. Somehow I died with Christ. Somehow I can live a new life with Christ when I transfer trust, when I transfer trust from myself to him. And what it means to believe is it just means I welcome what Christ has done into my life. That's what it means. I give the empty hands of faith and I say, I welcome it. I embrace it. I love it. What I want to do is I want to give you an opportunity right now to do that. Wherever you are, whether you're at home or whether you're uh, on your couch, whether you're by yourself, you're with family and friends watching this, I want to give you that opportunity. I just want to create a moment between you and the Lord for you to respond. And I want to make it as simple as possible. So what I want you to do is, and and I'm not trying to be overly spiritual here, but I'd love you to close your eyes. Uh, Because I want to avoid distractions in this moment, and I want to lead you in an opportunity to respond to the person of Christ. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the person of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. Pray with me as we respond together. Um, The first thing that I want to ask you to do is just, if, if that is you, if you'd say, I've never trusted in Christ, I've never really understood the resurrection, the first thing I want you to do is to admit that. And I want you to just admit that you're a sinner, that you're not a a mistaker who needs a life coach. You are a sinner who needs a savior. And the second thing I want you to do is just believe. Go, I don't understand everything, but I believe. I believe that somehow what you did counts for me. I believe that Jesus Christ can save me and change me and transform me. And the third thing I want you to do is I want you to confess it publicly. I want you to tell somebody that you know and love. I want you to say, I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm living for Jesus, I love Jesus, I don't understand everything, but he is my Lord, and he is my Savior, and he is my God. Lord, I want to pray for anybody who's done that right now. Lord, we just pray that coming out of this quarantine, coming out of this unique season in our nation, there would be so many people who are born again who are going back into their jobs and back into work, and the church, again in America would, and all over the world, would fill up with people who gave Jesus their sin and themselves in this season. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, what I want you to do, and you'll see the link right below me, is I want you to go to, I want you to, go to twocitieschurch.net slash first step. And on there, there's going to be several questions, and you can tell us, did you become a Christian? You could tell us, uh, do you want to get more connected to the church? Or you could tell us, hey, I just need to grow. I, just, I, I, want, I want help growing spiritually in this season that I'm in. Whatever you need help with, we want to bring the help, the hope, the healing of Christ to you in that way. And now, for many of you, if you gave your life to Christ, we're about to sing the song, Man of Sorrows, which is all about the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's going to mean something to you, and you're going to be able to sing it with a conviction you never have before. So would you sing with me and sing with us as we celebrate the risen Christ?